That is the question I have for you this morning, is what is your ambition? What is your great vocation in this life? That word vocation, calling. You have been called out to do, to be something in the world that God has created. What is it? What has God called you to? Frederick Buechner says, the place where uh, your great gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, that place where they meet, that is your vocation. That local place where the hunger in the local world where you reside meets with your great joy and gladness. That is your calling, your vocation. Stephen Garber wrote a book called Visions of Vocation, and in it he tells stories of people who, based on revelation, what God has revealed to them, to them about himself and his world, um, and the relationship that people have with God in union with Christ, that that then gives them a responsibility in God's world. It's a covenant epistemology. If you know something, you are bound by that knowledge to do something. What is your thing that you're bound to do in the world because you know something of the world and you know something of God and you know something of yourself? What is it that you're called to do in God's world? Paul was a man on a mission. To borrow a quote from Dr. Dre, he, was, he had his mind on his mission and his mission on his mind. We, we see that all the way back in Romans 1, 14 to 15. He says, I am under obligation, Paul says. I am obliged, I am responsible to both Greeks and barbarians, to both wise and foolish. I am eager, he then says, to preach the gospel to you also who are here in Rome. And in verse 20 of our text, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. The gospel, what we've been talking about through the book of Romans, the many facets of that gospel, namely that the gift of grace is given to the undeserving. The gift of grace is given to both Jew and Gentile alike in their undeserved status. Paul says the gospel he's preaching is that gospel, a gift to those who don't deserve it. Why is this Paul's mission? Because it's ultimately God's mission. Paul's mission is a subset of God's mission. Chris Wright, who wrote a book called The Mission of God, says, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church, but the church was made for mission. Mission arises from the heart of God himself. It is communicated from his heart to our hearts. Mission is the global outreach of a global people and of a global God. So this brings us back to the question, what is your mission? Our church has a mission to be a faithful presence of the love of Jesus in the absences of our city. What is your mission? What is your vocation, your calling, the place where the world's hunger and your gladness meet? Do you feel that your life has such a goal? As Paul says, an ambition. 
One of the characteristic struggles of our moment is a lack of purpose, a certain aimlessness in the modern world. Charles Taylor calls it the modern malaise. If our vocation in this world, which our world tells us our vocation is, is that you are your own, your being in life is your own, and you must then make an identity based on being your own and live into the world with that identity. And society provides all sorts of ways for you and I to do that. All sorts of ways to make a name for ourselves. All sorts of ways to make an identity for ourselves. And in addition to that, we have to discover that. We have to find that. We then also need others to affirm that. We need people around us to affirm that identity in the world if we are our own. And society provides ample ways for others to affirm us in our calling and our identities. I mean, social media is that mechanism by which... Your identity can be praised, affirmed by others. And yet, our world is one of rich anxiety. Our world is one of aimlessness, of a malaise. Why is that? We bounce between affirming things in our world and being resigned to the way the world is. Not knowing our callings. Separated from God, we can't discover. And if we discover it, uh, we walk down the road a few years and we have to rediscover it or undiscover it and find some other identity to discover. And then the whole hamster wheel continues. We must then find somebody to affirm us in our new identity, our new vocation. The Holy Spirit this morning speaks to us and tells us That because we are connected to Jesus by faith, because we have received the gifts of the gospel, if you in fact have received that gift, that Christ died for us when we were enemies, made us family and friends, so much so that the greatest divides can be spanned and we can live for the flourishing, the joy and peace of our neighbor, the joy and peace of the other, the joy and peace of our enemies, the joy and peace of our family the family of the church, because of this, we are part of the great story of God, the story of all of history, the unfolding work of the mission of God. Will you hear the Holy Spirit's call upon your life this morning? Your story and your history matters in the story of God. It is gathered up into the, in the story of God's people and the story of God, namely that God intends to rescue for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethne, every ethno-linguistic people group in the world. Have you heard that term before? Ethno-linguistic. There are between 12 and 13,000 Ethno-linguistic peoples in our world. And God intends to have a people. That is what we read in Revelation 7. After this, John has a vision. After this, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John says the worldwide vision, the end of this history, is a people. 
from every ethno-linguistic people group in the world standing before the throne and before the Lamb in worship. So when Paul says in Romans 15, 11, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Let all the people extol them. John Piper says he is saying that there's something about God that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying. Let me say that again. When he says, praise the Lord, all you nations, let all the peoples extol them, he is saying there is something about our God that is so universally praiseworthy, so profoundly beautiful, so comprehensively worthy, and so deeply satisfying. As I say those words, what do you think about your relationship with God in response to those words? Is it something so praiseworthy, beautiful, Worthy, satisfying. Piper goes on that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. His true greatness will manifest in the breadth of diversity of those who perceive and cherish his beauty. His excellence will be shown to be higher and deeper than the parochial preferences that make us happy most of the time. His appeal will be to the deepest, highest, largest capacities of our very human souls. Thus the diversity of the source of admiration, the ethno-linguistic people groups, represented before the throne, that diversity will testify to his incomparable glory. Friends, this is the goal of God's mission. This is why the church has been created. Paul says that God gave him, God gave him grace to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly device of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the word priest. He is a minister to the Gentiles, a priest to the Gentiles, the chief liturgist of the Gentiles. It is a word associated with the temple worship of the Old Testament. He then uses words like priestly service, offering, acceptable, holy, sanctified, Old Testament temple words. Why does Paul do this? He is applying his own missionary calling to the Gentiles. His missionary ministry of the new covenant is on par and equivalent with the Old Testament ministry calling. It is part of the worldwide mission of God from all of time and all of history. And his missionary work, Paul's missionary work, is a priestly work because he offers his Gentile converts as a living sacrifice to God. And the goal of all of this mission is worship. That all these people groups will be gathered around the throne of the Lamb in worship of God. If you read the Exodus story, by the way, if we go back to the Old Testament, this is what you see. The point of the Exodus of God's people, the liberty of the captives, the freedom of Israel from slavery, is so that the nations might know that God is the God and that the nations might worship the God and not everything else that they currently worship. 
There's something that C.S. Lewis talks about that we are busy making mud pies at the beach, so much so that we can't even recognize a holiday at sea. Our worship is bound up in mundane things, not ultimate things, and God invites us into the white-hot worship of him. Because why? Because that's where satisfaction in life is truly found. Piper says, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, but missions, because God is uh, Worship is ultimate and not missions because God is ultimate and not man. If you are part of God's mission in the world, then you must have a proper goal. The goal is that the people of the world, those ethno-linguistic peoples, will be satisfied with all that God is and worship him as the giver of the gift of life and salvation. That God is the living water, that in him one might never thirst again. The goal of, uh, that you hold these, that, that we talked about last week, of the, the people that you hold in your hearts, the goal for those people is worship. And what will spark missional effectiveness and fruit is when we, as God's people, are enjoying and delighting in God. When God is living water to us, what will help you in your evangelical courage, as we see this in Paul, when you believe and experience God as your portion and your cup, that if we lose everything and still have God, we have everything we could ever want or need. And the goal of mission is to love God by enjoying him forever. So my question for you this morning, is that your goal for your life? Is it your goal for the other people in your life? Paul's example for us this morning in Romans 15 is that this was his great goal. Why? Because he himself, changed by God on the road to Damascus, has been brought into enjoyment and delight of God to such a degree that he is willing to throw all his chips in and give his whole life to that mission of bringing others into the same enjoyment of God. Paul's example for us this morning is that this was his great goal. Why? Because he is enjoying and delighting in God. And that is what Christianity is for. What is it for you? For many of us, Christianity is an intellectual system that challenges us, satisfies our minds. It, it might be a moral foundation that eases our conscience. It is those, but it is mainly a wellspring of love that fills your longings, that fills the God-shaped hole in your heart, and then sets you about in the world to fill that in other people's hearts. To, to make the world a better place is built on the premise of love. And Christianity is about love, enjoying the gift of God's love for us and responding to that love with and through worship. And you can't respond to God's call to mission unless or until you experience the satisfying taste of the love of God and rest in that. Is the living water that Jesus offers you satisfying to you? Taste and see, the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. This is the goal of mission. And if you have this, then the most loving thing is offering that to others. Now think about that. 
That is why we delight to praise what we experience as praiseworthy. We want to share our delight. Love is helping people towards the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people towards God. That's the goal of mission. Next, Paul talks about the power of this mission. We see this in verse 17. Paul says he is proud of the work he has happened in, that has happened in his ministry. He was privileged, gifted, to be a part of the expansion of the gospel in the world. And adds the power for mission, for evangelism, for mercy, for church planning. In a word, for accomplishing God's call, it wasn't his gifts. It wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his willpower his determination, it wasn't his education. Look what he says in verse, seven, uh, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, sure, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. The power is that Christ accomplishes this work through Paul. Do you see that? Before I make any more appeals to you about the mission of God or joining or partnering in that mission, see the power, Jesus working through him. Now, how does that work? Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. God gives us his Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus himself. Why? To equip you, to aid you in joining with God in his mission. I want to encourage you with this. God has given you boldness, confidence, and joy in the mission that he has called you into because he's given you the Spirit. The Spirit is uniquely committed to witnessing to the power and reality of Jesus' sacrificial life and death, to the power of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 John 5, 7-8, the Apostle John says, The Spirit is the one who testifies, who gives witness, because the Spirit is the truth. When you witness, it is the Spirit witnessing through you. Through Paul, through Paul's story, through Paul's voice, through Paul's presence, the same through you. But it's the Spirit. John goes on. There are three that agree and testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. John is saying the Spirit is committed to testify to the washing away of sin through the blood of Jesus. And because he is committed to this, and because he is in you, he can empower you to the mission, to your vocation of sharing the love of Jesus. The Spirit testifies, we're told in Romans 8, with our spirit, that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? Do you see the power bound up in the ordinary life of suffering and sacrificial love? John Stott says the greatest hindrance to our evangelism, to our mission, to living lives of vocation is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. We're so adept 
at avoiding suffering and sacrifice because we don't think we can do it or endure it. But this is where the Spirit reminds us and testifies to us that we're heirs with God. This is where living water flows alone and thus satisfies because every other well is bitter in comparison. This is where our lives shine like stars in the universe. Why? Because having lost everything, we've gained the only thing. The the power of our mission comes from the Spirit. As the Spirit enables us to live into this life of sacrificial love and suffering. Next, in this chapter, we see the call of God's mission. And that extends through the rest of this chapter. What is God asking of us? Paul is coming to a crescendo here at the end of Romans. I I remember um, coaching basketball. I coached uh, three losing state championship teams in in, uh, basketball. Um, And one winning team. And um, I remember at the end of each of those losses, sitting down with, uh, I coached some high school girls, I coached some middle, and some middle school boys, and I remember sitting down with them and telling them about what this meant in the grand scheme of things. And I'm, I'm more a preacher than a coach, by the way. And so I wanted to tie this to their, their, that they are accepted in Jesus more than accepted in winning championships. So I did that first. And then I talked to them about, feeling the things that they're feeling, the the loss, the consequential that this moment is over. And for those players that were returning the next year, I wanted to launch them into the mission of achieving what they didn't achieve following that loss. Paul is coming to this end. and He wants to give the people of this church his heart. What does he say? I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. We are called to preaching the gospel, friends. Now, we believe the gospel has the power to change everything about you and our world. So you are being called to preach the gospel first to yourselves, to believe it, to rest in it, and then to preach it out of that to the world. How do you do that? Well, go back through Romans. We are all guilty and sinful before before God. Our lives are a mess. We are all desperately out of sorts. We are hopeless and forlorn on our own. Luke Evans reminded me of the W.H. Auden poem. Face, uh, he he wrote this poem while he was uh, in a, a nightclub one evening in London. This is what he writes. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play, lest we should see where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. Can we all see ourselves in that poem? Apart from Jesus, we are in the dark have never been happy or good. But God sent his son into the world to be a light to the world. Christ lived a life of obedience to God and gives us that perfect spotless record for free as a gift. And then Christ died a death on a cross, a shameful, horrible death to take away the weight and the curse of human rebellion against God. 
He offers forgiveness to us. He says that it is possible, in fact, that you can start afresh with him. If you trust in Jesus, if you fall into Jesus in faith, God reckons you as righteous, not just as a non-sinner, as if you've never done or said anything or thought anything wrong ever, but as one who is just and perfect as Jesus himself. This is the deep love of our God, who loved you when you were an enemy. This is the gospel we embrace. This is what Ray Ortland says. When I believe into Christ, I stop hiding and resisting. I surrender my autonomy in response to the good news. I, I, in other words, I surrender that I am my own. In response to the good news of all that Jesus has done, I hurl myself at him as my only hope. I want to be really forgiven of my real sins by a real Savior. When you look at Jesus in this way, you are brought safely into him forever. And in response to that, you and I are called to share the delight of the gift of his grace. Where? Well, for Paul where the name of Christ had not been heard. This is where I want to end this morning. For many of you, the locus of God's call, the place of your vocation, is going to be found here in this very local space. You're going to do it here in your neighborhoods, your family systems, in places that you work. You're going to do it at great cost in these local places. Like, there is no way for your friend or neighbor to believe in this message. Well, not no way. But it's rare without the witness of you self-sacrificing of yourself and your wants and your needs somehow in relationship to them or the world that you and they operate in together. Your vocation might have many facets to that. You might be an artist who writes beautiful things and tells good stories, creates beautiful pieces of art that dive at the depths of what it means to be human and needy in this world. You might be a computer programmer called to design software, and I don't get all that, so don't ask me. Program things to the glory of God. However, what I want you to see is that that cannot exist apart from the self-sacrificial life that you are called to lead. Now, for many of you, that's where it will be. But I want to impress upon you the importance. As we finish this morning, stay with me. I know you've heard lots of talking already. The importance of building on a foundation, of going to a place where the name of Jesus has never been heard. I remember the first time that I experienced this. I told you maybe this one time, other, one other time before. But I was in Southeast Asia. I was in the rural countryside, the poorest place I'd ever seen or known. And I was given the gift of rice wine, pungent rice wine with actual rice at the bottom of the cup. And I was drinking and Someone in Mandarin was sharing the story of King Jesus with people who had never, ever, ever once in their existence heard that name, did not know who it was. And so the story had to be contextualized in such a way to bring Jesus into their 
world, a very animistic world with spirits and such. And so this Jesus that the story told was a Jesus who was the king of all the spirits, who reigned over the realm of the spirits. And this Jesus came not to harass you, but to deliver you. And I sat there with my rice wine, getting a little light in the head, in wonder at the question's response. Who? Who? What? What? What's his name? He can do that? No, I didn't. That all had to be translated for me. Here, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, and he emphasizes the particularities of his call. Now, what I want you to hear this morning is in Isaiah 52, the suffering servant or the Messiah, Jesus is the one speaking. And he's the one that says he will preach to places that have never been heard. It's not, Paul then takes that and internalizes the mission of God through Jesus, the Messiah in the world, to his particular mission of preaching the gospel where it's never been heard. You and I have been created for worship and mission and sharing the delight of God and bringing others into the white, hot enjoyment of God. This is the missionary call that is to make our ambition to share the life that we had. But Paul adds, where he has not been made, of those 13,000 ethno-linguistic people groups, 7,000 of them have never, ever once heard the name of Jesus. Remember what Paul says in Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? For these 7,000 people groups, there is no preacher because there is no church and there is no missionary. And this was Paul's call. This is the ambition he shares. In fact, Paul says this is of a priority to him, so much so that it's detaining him from coming to Rome. His work of declaring the gospel where Christ has not been named has kept him from visiting Rome and helping this church. Why did Paul not come to this church? Christ had been named in this region among this ethno-linguistic people. And thus Paul makes it his ambition to preach elsewhere. How should that shape us? Well, in some ways, we should have an ambition for these people. A desire to see those 7,000 ethno-linguistic peoples stand before the throne and before the Lamb. A desire for an indigenous church that is able to preach the gospel there where Christ has not been named. This, Remember, this is why Paul is writing Romans. It is a missionary letter. You all have received those. If you've been in the church at all for any length of time, you've received Brian Whippo's letter telling you give to his missionary work. This is Romans. Paul is writing this letter so that he can go where? We're told to Spain. Spain represented the frontier, the edge of the earth, the end of his missionary journey to the Gentiles. This is where Paul wants to go, to Spain, to share Christ. But first, he must go to Jerusalem. He must deliver funds to help the poor, to aid the church there in conflict. But his feet still touch the ground. You see, Paul's heart for the mother church of the Jewish East is to propel him to the Gentile West where, he, that, where Jesus has not been named. So Paul will leave Corinth where he's writing this letter and go to Jerusalem for the delivery of the funds, for more fundraising, for the goal of sharing Jesus in Spain, and then to Rome for more fundraising. If he's rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, which we know at the end of the day he wasn't, 
he was arrested, and he comes to Rome in chains much later. And so he calls this church to pray that his missionary call might extend beyond Jerusalem, on to Rome, and then to Spain. See the call of God in these verses. The call of God to go to the unreached. See that call. There's a slide on the screen, I think. This is the 1040 window. This is where most of these people reside, of these 7,000 ethno-linguistic people groups. 6,000 are in that little rectangle box. Why? Well, because it's really dangerous to believe in Jesus in most of these places. Hostile. Hostile to the point of death. Also because there is no something in languages so that they can hear the message preached. There's no preacher going to these places because of all those considerations. It's also much of the poorest parts of our world. So it is a difficult call to go to these places. And so to respond to this morning, I want to quickly end here. Go to the unreached. One of the responses to this call is to go to this resistant belt, the 1040 window, where 5.26 billion individuals reside. To go, because the name of Jesus is not heard or known. Second, give. Bound up in the last few verses of this text is this idea of giving to support mission. The Macedonians gave in their poverty generously so Paul could support the mission of the church. Third, pray. That's how Paul ends this section, calling the church to pray. And so there's very simple application this morning. To live a life of vocation, I want to challenge you to understand that your vocation is bound up in your enjoyment of the Lord. And you've been called to enjoy God, to taste and see that he is good, and then out of that delight to share it. We've talked about witnessing through the book of Romans, and that's what witnessing is. It is sharing, testifying to the goodness that you've experienced in God. That, and that's to be done here, locally, in your neighborhoods and places, yes. But also, I want you to consider that this band of our world that is unreached, how can you go, give, and pray? I mean, the Operation World puts out something every day that you can pray through one of these ethno-linguistic peoples. It's a great place to start. Go online, Operation World. There's an app. Joshua Project is an app. And it guides you to pray for ethno-linguistic peoples who've never heard the name of Jesus, who have no viable witness there to tell them about him. If you get a chance to go on missions with Sun Network or anywhere else. Go. Learn the call of missions by going. But also, I challenge you to think about how you might go to the unreached peoples. At the beginning of uh, the war with Iraq, I was a college minister, and uh, I had a student named Colin. And uh, every summer, as a college minister, I know I'm going long. This is just this is how it's going to be today. One of the things that I tried to impress upon my college students, because 
in Lubbock, Texas, you would get all kinds of offers of what to do with your summer. And there was lots of them, and lots of them were really appealing, internships and the like. But also, we had every camp imaginable in Texas, Colorado, and beyond that would come to our gathering to meet students to get them to come and work at their camp. And I remember telling students, I really wish you would consider not going to camps, but going to the unreached peoples of the world. This is the one time in your life you can do it without burden. You're not married. You have nothing tying you down. Go for the summer. Go to the unreached. And they would invariably say, I I can't go. My parents. That's y'all. By the way, that's me. I have college kids. If my kids came to me and said, hey, Dad, I want to go to Afghanistan, my stomach would get tied up in knots. And those parents did too. And I remember having to coach those kids how to do this, how to talk with their parents, how to share about this, how to share their delight in Christ to such a degree that they feel compelled to go to the place where the deep brokenness of the world and their deep gladness meet, which for them was there for one summer. And Colin Foster was like, I'm going to go do Iraq. There's a ministry there that we, I knew of. And this was really in the middle of it. Bombings were happening on the regular, and he had to go to his mom and tell his mom, Mom, this is where I want to go. Now, for most of us, the thought of this seems totally asinine, crazy, to go to a war-torn place in the midst of war to share the good news about Jesus. You can do that later. But Colin was compelled to go, to tell, to share. Now, nothing crazy happened. You might think that I share that story because something crazy happened. Nothing crazy happened. He went, spent six months there, whole semester of school, and came back and talked about the love of Jesus that he shared. That's part of it, right? Part of this is I'm going to go or I'm going to support or I'm going to pray and I'm going to come back and tell so others might go support or pray. That's how this thing continues on. And that's what Paul's doing in the ending his letter. When he prays peace upon the people of this church, he's praying for their flourishing, that their flourishing might lead to the flourishing of the nations, so that the nations will be flocked toward Jesus, and the worldwide vision of the end might come to fruition. And that call has not been finished because the Lord has not returned, and you are invited into the same call. Let's pray. God, we ask you this morning, too, as we uh, come to the table to help us. Namely, I just pray that you would help us to think about what our calling is this morning. And then how your call intersects with ours so that we might go, so we might send, so we might pray. Turn us into a church of goers, senders, and prayers and the worldwide mission of God, that our worship might be the fuel upon which other people's worship will burn. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.